everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jace Craft. You're listening to the Science of Sports Recovery podcast. Today on the show, I have Joanne McCauley. She goes by Coach P, and she offers a unique insight into the often connected worlds of mental health and athletics. And as being the head coach for Duke women's basketball team for over a decade, Coach P saw firsthand the impact of mental health in sports and the importance for mental health advocacy, uh, as well as the struggles for female athletes in particular. So now Coach P acts as a mental health advocate, as well as an advocate for female athletes in general. We are going to talk about the mind-body connection and how that affects recovery when it comes to athletics. You're listening to the Science of Sports Recovery podcast. Each week, we explore how to recover more efficiently from training so you can work out harder and realize your full potential. This is the Science of Sports Recovery podcast. Coach P., Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chase. Pleasure to be here, and I, I just really appreciate meeting you as well. Awesome. Well, I'm uh, I'm super humbled to to meet you as well. It's not too often that um, you get to chat with the the coach of such a well known school um, that has kind of the, all the notoriety that comes with it as well. So I'm curious to know your athletic career before becoming a coach because. Anybody who works as a coach or in the athletic realm, they tend to have some sort of athletic, uh, you know, background as well. So, what was that for you? Was it always basketball, or like where did you start? Uh, three sport athlete. Back in the day, it was cool to play three sports. So I had some softball going, soccer, and basketball. Fell in love with basketball. Um, ended up pursuing that in the summers and getting better. And took a scholarship to Northwestern. Played in the Big Ten. Enjoyed that immensely and became a coach by accident. Really kind of fell into coaching sure. um, to pursue my master's degree. Awesome. So when you say by accident, what were you planning to do? Well, I thought I'd go back to, I don't know, um, be a lawyer. I, the typical things you think about sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I, I was getting um, thinking about my MBA. I ended up getting that anyway, but still thinking sure. about graduate school and future opportunities. I was working outside sales at the time. Uh, bottom line, though, went to Auburn. Uh, did get the MBA, but coached to get it. Okay. And as a graduate assistant, was yeah. able to really feel coaching and get excited about it. Sure. So what was the moment that you're like, hey, I'm getting this MBA, but coaching is what I'm going to do long term? The moment after my first year. My, my first year as a GA, I thought everybody was high maintenance. I thought <laughs> coaching was the hardest job ever. And but it was my second year where I, I saw the relationships develop, a chance to impact young lives, and then head coach at 26, and off we go from there. Awesome. Head coach at Auburn, or was that somewhere else that you got that? At, at the University of Maine. After, okay. leaving, after leaving Auburn, going to the University of Maine. Sure, sure. So, young coach, not much older than your athletes, I would assume. How was that like a transition from, hey, now I'm in charge of you? And, you know, there could be two years, maybe one year difference here. It was, a, it was a learning curve for sure. A new coach, a new head coach at 26, and I did have a player at 20, uh, 22 on, on the team. So it was uh, finding my way and learning from the players as much as I could. But you tend to be a little bit more dogmatic as an initial young coach trying to do your thing. Sure. Uh, so there were lessons for me to learn uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously through your story, we'll get into that a little bit now. You know, mental health has become the the forefront of what you're about now, you know, what you advocate for. During your athletic career, um, before the coaching career, did you, did like, was there any indication to you that, you know, mental health might be more important in your future? Um or what I'm saying, I guess, is like, did you did you pay attention to mental health as an athlete before becoming a coach? 
Uh, not as much. I will say this, though. The one-time opportunity I had, there was a psychologist at Northwestern that was introduced to the team. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting. And I actually met with him one time to see what it was like to talk yeah. about this thing called sports psychology. I never met with him a second time, uh, but it was my first time that I was exposed to uh, that kind of support. And then I also rec- recognize that nobody else asked to meet with him. You know, mm. it's definitely volunteer, you know, volunteer basis, of course. But yeah. no- nobody else said, I'm going to go try and meet with this gentleman. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. What, what were your, if you remember, what were your kind of key takeaways from that conversation? As a young player, I was trying to get used to the transition to the Big Ten mm-hmm. and the expectations and also always trying to get more playing time. So the conversation was yeah. somewhat about that, uh, although I don't remember the feedback I received. Uh, sure. so, so I remember very little, but I remember taking the step to go ahead and have that meeting. Yeah. Do you remember why you didn't do a second meeting? No, I don't. I don't know what what the story was there. I, but I also remember that nobody else did. Mm-hmm. So, so perhaps it was pure, uh, pure, pressure. Uh, pure pressure of sorts. Uh, by another's act, no one else acting on it. Yeah. Well, um, I was planning on going into your story, but you you just sparked a, a, a <laughs> rabbit trail that I want to go down here. Um, mental health, like just the overall culture around it, you know, it seems to be sort of shifting, uh, and I, I think potentially in a good way. Um, what would you say, like, as a culture around mental health, not only in athletics, but worldwide, now, today, in, you know, July of 2021, versus when you were an athlete, um, like, how do people view it differently? Well, I think it's a generational thing. I think you've got a younger generation that is more open and accepting and is more into this idea that some things are not a big deal when you share them and you share your authentic self. Then older generations, I think, have more of a problem relative to not having experience with all the different, well, I guess the labels and diagnoses and all the different things that have come out. Mm-hmm. So you've got a spectrum of experience and a spectrum of acceptance as well. And now we're into very complicated times. Post-pandemic, I mean, the number one word there is burnout. There's a lot of burnout in a lot of different spaces and places. So you've got a post-pandemic world, which is highly complicated. And then, of course, within the student-athlete spectrum, you've got all sorts of new things going on Mm -hmm. relative to opening up rules, uh, the whole thing of name and likeness and and, and all of that. So I see it really a combustible, very we're in a precarious position Mm -hmm. and one in which we must deal with carefully. Do you think that with the pandemic, like taking a a lot of athletes had to take like a season off um, Mm -hmm. from their sport, you know, at least some sort of time off from competing. Do you think that added like to the reflection of what is sport? What does it mean to me? Why am I doing this? You know, what's the future? Without question, I think it added to all things. Reflection. Mm -hmm. Why am I doing this? How am I doing this? Am I going to be the same afterwards? Have I overcompensated and burnt my way out in different, you know, myself out in different ways? I think all those questions are relevant. And I think sometimes going to have to pass before we see all of what's taking place. And of course, some of it, the reflective part, I mean, some of it's very good, of course. It's good to be reflective, but it's also hard to reflect if you're, if you're looking in every different direction. And you become uncertain and unsure. Sure. So it, it depends on how we're kind of seeing things yeah. relative to the direction we're moving. Yeah. You bring up a good point where, like, action is an important part of um, just even mental health. Like, acting on things. You can think about things all day and then you get in your thoughts and in your thoughts, thoughts and, and that kind of stuff. Um, acting kind of creates clarity because then you get feedback from the real world like is this the way I should go or not um at least in, in my experience that's what I have, have kind of found out now let's get into um your new coaching career 
at Maine and uh, you know start having some success. You start you know having um, this drive for success and and stuff. What happens when? And I know you. I want I want to leave this open for you to tell a story how you want to tell it. Uh, but I know you get diagnosed with bipolar and, and all those kinds of things as well. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but like, what starts that? Starts the bipolar or? Starts the journey of like understanding something is wrong. Yeah, it, it's a, it can come up right behind you and surprise you and take you completely off guard as it did me at age 30. I had given birth to my first child the year prior and I had to be told by others that I had an issue as I went into a manic episode. Mm. And it's something as an athlete, you deny profusely. You cannot believe that your mind may have left you or caused you to have these grandiose thoughts and, and, and bring you to a space that could be dangerous uh, mm. to yourself, certainly and to, you know, to others or who knows. Um, so it, it's a very scary thing. I was very fortunate the support I received, the people around me, the doctors. And when I was at Maine, I was there for eight years. And two, I had two episodes, a manic episode and a depressive episode. And both taught me a great deal, not to mention my family and those around me. Um, but I was very fortunate to leave Maine on extremely high note with good medicine, good doctors, good support, a bunch of championships, and an opportunity to coach at Michigan State. Okay. Um, and it, stop me if we go down too far, something you don't want to go down. Um, but for those listening, I think, you know, bipolar is something that might seem a little foreign. Um, so I just want to shed some light on, you know, what that actually is, how it's caused, or if you're born with it, um, those kinds of things. So, like, what... When, when somebody says, like, you've been diagnosed with bipolar, what does that actually mean? Yeah, that's a, yeah, a specific diagnosis, and you have the ability to go in both directions, high and low. So it's management of high and low, and um, it can be caused, certainly genetics is a factor, uh, but beyond that, too, there are triggers, certain events in life, stressors in life, uh, that can trigger it more so and require medical treatment and medicine. I take medicine every day of my life. That puts me in a place of balance and allows me to be my best self. Uh, it's really no different than somebody with high blood pressure uh, who has to take medicine in that regard. But it certainly has a, a stigma attached to it because, of course, it's about the brain. Mm -hmm. And the brain is an amazing, obviously, amazing thing, the brain, and how we balance it and how we take care of it. Yeah. And so there are so many lessons I have to live by that also apply to many, even if they have no diagnosis or they're not bipolar, uh, just the way you care for yourself mm -hmm. and, and the way you treat yourself. And so uh, I talk about all forms of mental impairment, not just bipolar, mm -hmm. but all forms, depression, yeah. anxiety. Anxiety is a big one. Uh, yeah, out with the day. Totally. So I try to we try to talk about the spectrum a little bit. Yeah, you you brought up a, a a good point that you kind of briefly said. You know, it's it's foreign or it's scary because it's about the brain. Because we, especially in the athletic world, like we know how our body reacts. We know you know our physical. We have we're pretty in tune with. Oh, my leg is sore. You know, I know how to heal that. You know, oh, my arm is sore. I know how to heal that. We have athletic trainers to heal that. The brain is something that, like the body, it can, you know, can get sick. It can get healthy. It can, you know, go off track, those kinds of things. But it's less clear on how to heal it, I think. Yeah. Do you think that's why there's kind of that, oh, it's, you know, that stigma? Absolutely. And there's a, there's a lack of control. I mean, sometimes when you hurt your leg, you might say, well, I stepped the wrong way as I was running and I hurt my leg and I know how to fix it. I go to the trainer. But, you know, the cause and effect situation with the brain can be very different. So there's a lack of control there, a lack of understanding. And then, of course, it's just extremely scary. I, I can't tell you of anything scarier than your thoughts not matching up. You know, And then others telling you, 
well, you're really not yourself. You know, that's a very scary concept. You're really not yourself. And when we think about that, those words are of great value, especially when they come from people we love and trust. And so if you're really not yourself, it's, it's important to think maybe why are you not yourself and what steps can you take? And an openness about brain health. I mean, the brain is magnificent. And so brain health is, is what the conversation is really about. Uh, mental health, that's a great two words, uh, for sure. Brain health is another great two words. Yeah. Now, now, you know, brain impairment, okay, that means there needs to be some adjustments. Sure. But those adjustments can be made and you can be better than ever and make mm. those adjustments. Yeah, totally. So you also mentioned like when you, you had to be told by others. And I know you've mentioned this on uh, multiple times, multiple throughout your story and on other podcasts as well. You had to be told by others that something was wrong. And, you know, it's probably partly your personality, um, but also like athletes in general, I think trick themselves into thinking that they're healthier than they are because I'm an athlete, right? Because I, uh, you know, we were talking off, off camera here. I could run a 410 mile in my peak <laughs> position or peak, you know, um, fitness. But, like, doing 10 push-ups, sore for a week, right? So am I, like, really healthy because, you know, it, I was so specific. Um, and then another example, you know, my story, I go through burnout through college and I'm underweight because I don't eat enough. And then a lot of things happen with that mm -hmm. and, and stuff. So, but I was always like, I can run 80 miles a week or a hundred miles a week. So I'm healthy, right? That's not always the case. And that's what I try to tell people on this podcast as well. It's like, just because you're an athlete doesn't mean you're healthy. Um, do you see that a lot from like in the, in the basketball world where athletes will think that they're healthy, but they're not? Oh gosh. Yes. I mean, of course, that's how we're, that's how we're made. That's mm -hmm. how we became elite athletes. So that was coaching elite athletes for me. I mean, you've got to find what's right, not what's wrong. And you've got to mm -hmm. find a way through yep. and that battling, I mean, that battling is important and it's a mechanism that allowed us all to win championships and do great things, sure. but it can swing back around, as you say, and hurt you mm -hmm. uh, without reality uh, being clear. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, I, I, I credit my sports background for helping me handle my own brain impairment. Yeah. It, it helped me tough through some incredible times that I write about in the book. Mm -hmm. So I, so I, I have an incredible feeling of um, strength and endurance from sport, which I know you have too, from what you've fought through. The key is how do we apply it? Yeah. And do we apply it the right way? Yeah. Or do we apply it against us or with us? Totally. So that's, that's the trick. Yeah. So if we're relating the physical world to the mental world, assuming that they're two different worlds, um, you know, in the physical world, when I'm beginning unhealthy, there's some signs, right? So, like, uh, especially in endurance athletes, like, most of your injuries are overuse injuries. So, like, oh, my knee is starting to hurt. is because, you know, my quad's tight or, or something else is tight. And then you can adjust and fix that because you're seeing the small signs before they get bigger. Is that the same thing? Like, can we use that analogy in the mental uh, world? Well, you, yes, you can look, look for some clear-cut signs that can put you in a space of, you know, kind of rattling your brain a little bit, whether you have genetics or not. The first one is sleep. How are you sleeping? Uh, are you a good sleeper? Have you gone without three nights sleep? You know, anything about sleep is going to affect your brain and certainly affect your body. And so that, that's a big trigger for, for people with anxiety or any other form is how they're caring for their body. So the first thing is, you know, and of course, nutrition counts too and all of that, as you know. But, but the, the sleep trigger is huge. And as an athlete, as you were, and a student, I bet you put that on the back burner at times as you were training and you academically yeah. had to, you know, carry a load and, and so that's a big key that we're talking about now is, is, is the kinds of sleep you get. Mm -hmm. not, not just, you know, a good solid eight hours, but 
how rested are you through yeah. your sleep and how you take care of your body that way. So that's that's the beginning point of understanding uh, the brain health and, and how important sleep is. Totally. Yeah, and we, um, I don't know if you've listened to past episodes, but back in episode 10 or 11, we talked to Nick Littlehales, who's known as the sports sleep coach. He's worked with Big Sky and um, a bunch of NFL, NBA, and LB uh, teams on their sleep patterns. And we talk about it's not always, it's not quantity that necessarily counts, it's quality. So I'm curious to know, like, do you suggest tracking your sleep? Um, with anything like any outside third party watches, apps, straps, anything like that, or like well, how do you actually, keep track of that? Well, I I actually do, and it's not an easy thing to do though because it's expensive, and mm-hmm. these things are not available out there for everyone, and that bothers me. But on a personal level, uh, we have a sleep number bin, and that talks to you about the kind of sleep, the quality of sleep, how many times mm-hmm. you you know get up, don't get up. Um, yeah. You know, it gives feedback, and I, I, I'm a believer in feedback, and one of the reasons I believe in it, let's say you've got your watch on, and it's marking your sleep, and it's giving you feedback. Yeah. When you go to fall asleep, you generally won't find yourself looking at the clock, trying to analyze your sleep as you're trying to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, because that's not going to get you very far. Yeah. And so one of the things this bed did for us when, when we bought it was it took away my looking at the clock thing because one of the things you start to do with sleep is you start to say, wow, it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm not asleep yet. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you, you start to catastrophize your sleeping pattern totally. and that only makes it worse. So I, if there are ways that people have mechanisms um, in place, a really dark room, I would put the, I would put the, um, clock down, you know, all the lights out, completely dark, and give yourself that, that opportunity to get a deep sleep, uh, that's that's helpful. But if you have some feedback as well, I felt that that took the pressure off my sleep yeah. um, analysis, basically. Totally. So on the flip side of this, what happens when you get in that feedback, you wake up the next day, like, do you look at the feedback? right away is that kind of a game because that's what I did when <laughs> I started having like tracking my sleep with a watch and like oh how much you know how good did I do last night you know uh, how well did I play and <laughs> it almost became more stressful than afterwards and it was like oh I didn't get that much deep sleep last night what was the issue there right and then I started kind of you know stressing about that do you see that or is that not that just a me problem <laughs> no, I think, that, I think that we're like that as athletes, and I'm not surprised that you say that at all. Um, I think, though, I'm older than you. I'm going to guess <laughs> that I'm older. And so it's, it's just good information for me. If I have a poor sleep night, um, I kind of shrug it off and recognize that, okay, you know, I, I'll make sure to eat better or to do something, you know, for the next night's sleep. So I, I appreciate the feedback. Um, and also, too, sometimes you you don't think you sleep well, and then you sleep better than you thought. So that's yeah. also <laughs> let you know. Um, so it works different ways, and you just have to manage the information. Mm-hmm. As you know, we're in an information era of sure. the world, and uh, so too much information can be too much. So you yeah. just got to manage it what's right for you. For sure. So our audience likes to kind of get into some of the, the nitty-gritty of um tech and different tools and that kind of stuff. So I got to ask you a little bit more about your sleep number bed. What kind of like uh, metrics does it give you that you're watching and, and that kind of stuff? It gives you um, hours, you know, hours of sleep, deep sleep. So it gives you that. It gives you how many times you get out of bed. It gives you an orange area where your heart rate was a little bit higher than normal. Okay. suggesting restless sleep. Are you and wearing so- something that's connected to the bed? It's just part of your phone connected to the bed. So there's nothing, you're not wearing anything. So um, how, how does it, no heart rate then? Uh, reads it off the bed. Wow. And of course, crazy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> these are, these are sadly expensive beds. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure too, that they're not going to give you everything. I'd, I'd like to talk to your sleep expert on this. 
but um, but to me, it actually it does work. It it mm-hmm. it does give me the feedback I need, and it and it gives you a ranking. Like let's say you get an eighty five, the best I've ever gotten is a ninety two. The worst I ever got was like a ten. <laughs> and of course, there are events that triggered that. Meaning, mm-hmm. I played tennis late into the night, and yeah. my body could not wind down. You know, we talk about sleep. Part of sleep is what your what your um, your pre sleeping habits. I mean, how do you get to bed? How long do you work on your routine? Mm-hmm. It's hard to just jump into bed. I mean, especially an athlete like yourself or others that get themselves all geared up. Yeah. I mean, you've got to, you've got to have that wind down ability. So I, I definitely do. And I have a routine, a bedtime mm-hmm. routine that I live by. Yeah. How well you sleep is how well you are awake. And what I mean by that is yeah. sleeping is a passive experience. You can't go to bed and say sleep, you know, and <laughs> um, it's something that you, like you said, you wind down and you have a routine and, and those kinds of things. Um, I'm curious to know your routine if you're open to sharing that. Uh, for the listeners, like, what do you do to make sure that you're getting the 92 rather than the 10? The 92. Well, I don't, you know, again, I'm older. Okay. So I don't, I, I try not to eat or eat anything past seven or seven thirty. Like, I just don't want to get into eating late. Okay. So, um, I drink a lot of ice water with lemon and a lot. And, and then, of course, not always ice, just regular tap water with lemon. Mm-hmm. So I always have a hot bath. And that, and I'm, when I say hot bath, I'm talking a hot bath. <laughs> so I, I'm always decompressing. Um, there's an infrared sauna that we have. I, I'm a melanoma survivor, and we kind of felt that that was helpful to me in some ways. And so there's there's ways that I decompress. I never watch TV. There's no TV in the bedroom. So there's no computer screens. Nothing. Phones turned off. Uh, always reading. You know, quiet time, allowing your brain to fall asleep naturally without getting stimulated by a phone. So I have a definite sequence that I that I follow. And alcohol is something people choose or not choose, but I'm extremely careful with alcohol. I, I will I will have a beverage, but certainly not a lot, not frequently. And yeah. I'll make sure I'll hydrate even better if I do. And it will affect sleep. Alcohol is a huge impact of sleep. Totally. Um, I can tell a difference without any um, metrics or tools. If I have, yeah, I, I'm not a big alcohol drinker. I, I had my first, uh, I actually didn't have any alcohol until I got married. And it's not because my wife was driving me crazy. Uh, it's just something that I, I put athletics before that for nutrition and stuff. So, um, Anyways, but now, so I, I, I tell that because I'm, I'm not a heavy drinker. Um, so if I have more than one beer in, a, in the evening, like I can tell the sleep uh, is definitely affected. Uh, but you said you go to, you stop eating at 7, 7.30-ish. What time are you going to bed? Just to put that in perspective, because somebody in college yes. might be yes. saying, like, I, I go to bed at you know, midnight or 1 o'clock and then I sleep till 10 or, or whatever, because uh, that happens. But, you know, obviously. Yeah, that's very very different college and and where I'm at. I mean, I'm going to be 56 here, approaching 56. Um, I pretty much consider myself in bed at 9.30, 10 o'clock, no later than that. It's a big night for me if it's after 11. Mm -hmm. And God God forbid if it's midnight, but that's just going to ruin me (laughs) for the next day. So, again, I was once young, too. Um, Yeah. I'm sure you've got a lot of, you know, young listeners, but this is what happens later in life. You know, yeah. you, you, you eat less. You just do. You eat less for starters, and then you, you, your habits change regarding sleep. But I definitely, some people say you sleep less when you get older. I, I don't believe that totally. I think I think you need sleep a lot. And, um, yeah, so that's, I'm kind of a different person eating early. You know how... We call us yeah. the blue hairs, right? The blue hairs. You know, the... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've heard that term. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's the way in the women with the blue hair. The early, <laughs> the early, the early folks. Um, what they call the early bird special people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I'm kind of an old soul, and my teammates always 
used to joke around calling me grandpa because I would go to bed at 9 o'clock and call it, uh, wake up early and stuff. It's just the way I was wired and stuff. But the, the point here is having a consistent sleep schedule, having a consistent time where you're saying, hey, you know, not necessarily from this point on, I'm doing like everything to get ready for bed, but this point on, I'm not eating this point on, you know, no more phones and, and those kinds of stuff, just gradually winding down. Um, so I want to, I want to get into the differences between and maybe actual differences and perceived differences between mental health and athletes, men versus women. Because um, obviously men and women are, are built differently. We've had several podcasts on how physically women, you know, in, in athletics are, you know, their bodies are different. Uh, you know, so that should reflect in their training, but it doesn't always, you know, or research and that kind of stuff. In, in your perspective, like what has been the biggest difference you see between men and women in mental health? If you stick around and listen to enough of our episodes here on the Science of Sports Recovery podcast, you'll notice a common theme of importance of mobility in recovery and injury prevention. That's why I recommend checking out the Ready States Virtual Mobility Coach to help you improve your mobility, recoverability, and injury prevention. The Ready State is a brainchild of coach and athlete Dr. Kelly Starrett, who you can learn more about on episode 13. His virtual mobility coach program helps athletes understand the importance of recovery, pain relief, and self-care. In other words, it helps fix the recovery side of training so you can keep seeing results from your workouts. His program will guide you through the same mobilizations used on athletes in the NFL, NHL, and MLB. Provide custom tools for pain relief give you customized pre and post exercise mobilizations based on your training and sports schedule and deliver daily mobilizations to keep you on track to achieve your goals. You put your heart and soul into your workouts. Make sure you get the most of them by going to the readystate.com slash Jace. Again, that's the readystate.com slash J A S E. The link will also be in the show notes. Now back to the show. Well, I wish I had more experience overall because I've coached women. Mm-hmm. But what I can see, just knowing that, you know, I've got a son, but also coaching men a little bit, it, it just, women are, because of who we are and how we're made and the complexities of what we go through hormonally, mm-hmm. as females, we're more geared, I think, in a general way because of things that we face growing up and all the way through puberty. I mean, we go through a lot. And and I think that's the key for women, becoming a little bit more in tune with our bodies and how we need it to go. And then with guys, I mean, it's so important uh, to have acceptance and openness there. And I think that's harder. I think it's societal as well. You know, you know, tough it out, that idea that we tough things out, uh, that we don't really get to the deeper issues. But I do feel when I talk to young people and give advice or, or listen to them, especially since I've become an advocate, it's very little difference to me, the feelings that I, I sense and I've talked about with women and with men. You know, when a, when, a, when a man decides to open up a little bit about what his concerns are, for example, a recently diagnosed bipolar male talking to me about his issues and concerns. And then, of course, a female doing the same, there's much similarity mm-hmm. uh, between how the whole mental health issue is perceived and what the challenges are. So it's, you know, it's, you know, women and men are different and unique, uh, but a lot of the problems don't always have to be when it comes to brain health. Sure. And so I think that's, I think it's part of recognizing that we're all part of this together and we all come about it different ways. I guess that might be a way of saying it. Sure. Do you see if there is like one, not really sure what to call it, maybe issue or problematic area that a lot of athletes have that's not really talked about a lot when it comes to mental health? I mean, we talked about anxiety, um, you know, stress, which is kind of a end-all, be-all term, like, you know, stress is anything essentially 
Mm-hmm. But is there is there something that you see that's not really talked about that you wish was talked about more? Well, it's more about what we're connecting about. There's more discussion. Words are being thrown around sure. to use. But is there a connected way that a young person is able to seek help and have it wrap around all parts of coach, you know, psychologist, psychiatrist, if necessary. The, the network of opportunity for brain health is suspect at best. The coordinated effort by the pieces, there are, there are pieces often in place, yet they don't connect or they don't communicate or they haven't found a way to communicate. I mean, a student athlete has HIPAA rights and privacy issues. Of course, those should never be compromised. But at the same time, too, a coach needs to be brought in to be the most effective coach that coach can be under the circumstances. So I think, you know, this performance anxiety, this overall anxiety, and then you've got to keep in mind, 62% feel the pandemic has an impact them negatively. For student athletes, I mean, that's an enormous amount of, you know, leftover pandemic residue that's continuing. So you have a lot of these issues swirling about, but without question, anxiety and performance anxiety are, are the real, are the real issues that I think student athletes generally have had. And now it's just being poured on because now it's their career planning. What does their senior year look like? What does their sport look like? How do they look within their sport? Do they have a future? I mean, I think it's kind of interesting that you've got professional athletes that are more open than amateur athletes about mental health. Well, there's a good reason for that. Those professional athletes are more secure financially and have a stronger sense of the direction they're moving. But it's the amateurs that we have to watch out for. And that is... That's what concerns me a great deal. I mean, professionals yeah. as well. I mean, we all have our issues. But totally. amateur, amateurs are really trying to work out of this kind of mud mm-hmm. that's affected um, their lives greatly. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up too, uh, like the financial part of the ecosystem as well. Because if you're working with student athletes, you know, a student athletes like my sophomore year, I had 25 cents to my name. You know, like we're dirt poor. And the thought of like a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, you know, or a mental health professional bringing somebody on to my team or, you know, my, my inner circle to say, Hey, I need help. Like that seems that feels expensive. Right. Um, and it very well could be. And so, so how can schools like support their athletes without it being a financial burden to the athlete. Because um, especially like the smaller schools, I've never been to Duke. You know, I was a D2 athlete and track and and running was not the focal point of the school. (laughs) It was focal. Um, You know, so we had access to athletic trainers, no cost to us. But the mental side. Right, we just don't have access to. So, is that something that you see in the future should be brought in as a part of like the athletic training team to have somebody on the mental side too? Well, it's very, it's very forward thinking and visionary because if you've got stronger mental health, your physical health is going to be overall better, Mm. and you're going to have a better environment within the athletic department. Now, take your athletic department for example. I know football might have been the thing, but you've got all those student athletes. And each school has to build their network accordingly. But but with one sports psychologist or one sports psychiatrist working in concert, you can actually save dollars in the long run relative mm-hmm. to, relative to issues. Not to mention save lives. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're we're in the business of taking care of uh, young people and yeah. and saving lives if necessary. So it's just making the coordinated effort. You know, it, it it's. Each school taking the time, and, and there are so many great trainers and head trainers and people that know so much about psychiatry. Uh, you, even nurses being elevated more for psychiatric, you know, their abilities in that mm-hmm. way. Sports psychiatry is a lot about loving sport, you know, and, and helping people yeah. 
afford themselves. I, I know a sports psychiatrist that, I mean, doesn't even play golf, but can help a golf team. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's all about, you know, what, what that yeah, yeah. next shot is going to be. Not that shot you just had, but, you know, mm. it's a setup for a better shot. So the reality is there's so much we can do outside the box that before we didn't view as important. Mm-hmm. It was not a priority. And if the pandemic has some positives, because there are so many negatives, yeah. maybe some of the positives can be that we restructure. We find a way to restructure mm-hmm. within a Division two school, whether it's Duke, whoever it is. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to, to tease this part out a little bit more. If any um, faculty is listening to this or from the school, you mentioned that um, the concept of having you know, a mental health professional with the teams could actually save the school money and it comes with the concept of prehab is cheaper than rehab you know um what ways like have you we dove into that like do you do you have any more information on how that could look if somebody is you know listens to this conversation or been following you and say you know this is actually important to our student body how can i make this financially you know pitch this to our president or you know athletic director or, or whatever who well, I, would start, yeah, I would start within the training room and, of course, the doctors that are already present. You know, take mm-hmm. your team that you have and see where you can fill in gaps. I mean, sure. some of the roles don't have to be psychologists or even psychiatrists. The role that I've been filling is a coach who gets mental health. And mm-hmm. so everyone kind of can relate to a coach to some degree. So you have to think outside the box. Yeah. And it's not just, okay, there are two psychologists. Here we go. I mean, if, if, if the people involved are not crazy about sports and loving, you know, that type of thing, then they shouldn't be anywhere near it. Totally. You, know, you can't check boxes. You've got to find the humans that fit. And so it can come in different forms. Again, I'm sort of a coach. I'm a mental health coach. I help young people not only with mental health issues, if they mm-hmm. have them, but just their brain being right. Yeah, and also them being able to say, "Oh, look, this happened to you." So, so that would be, that's that would be a niche I serve. Sure. Again, psychologists they serve a niche. Psychiatrists they serve mm. a niche. The head trainer, the trainers. It, it's it, there's all sorts of ways to do it. It takes a vision, creativity, and and finding the right people. Yeah. So. What I'm hearing you saying that rather than bringing in, you know, potentially, rather than bringing in a psychologist or a psychiatrist, um, you can start with the staff that you have now, give them, like, who's interested in this, who has the tools to do this, um, you know, to start supporting athletes as a part of, you know, maybe they're an athletic trainer now, but also they're available to talk about, you know, the mental side. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, and you've got to have a connector to someone who can administer meds. So the psych person, there has to be a vested person who enjoys sports, is a psychiatrist, and can see referred kids quickly, not just a week from now, a month from now. But the whole basis would be, I think this person has an issue, this person may have an issue, person goes to the psych, and maybe they do need meds. Maybe that's part of what the solution is, or maybe they don't need meds. But you have to have those outlets, and they have to be connected. And sometimes they're connected just to the student body. But the point is you've got to find a way to match the student body, but also your athletes who are being asked to do more overall in terms of how they represent the school. So it's kind of a combined effort. And and if a school is really good, uh, they would have, you know, the whole student body covered the way they cover student athletes, you know, you think about it, yeah. you know, going to a higher level. And, you know, this is all in, you know, in debate right now in, ter- in terms of how to do this properly and, and also how to bring in the current coaches who want to do more, but are often told, can't talk to you, HIPAA, can't talk to you, HIPAA. And that's not, that's not true. You can get feedback and find a way for your role as a current coach to best help a student-athlete. Yeah. So we have, we have a ways to go to connect the dots. Sure. There's, there's a couple of things I don't work in close to the end of our time here, but um, 
what, like, so say a coach wants to be more involved in the mental side of their athletes and bring it, you know, part of their programming or, or communication, like, how would they know how far to go as far as when it comes to advice, right? Because that's a hard part where it's like, you know, I'm not a professional, I'm not professionally trained in this, and you kind of get that stigma too, like I, I need a degree in something to, you know, obviously we can't prescribe anything, um, but when is it okay to give advice and when is it like just need to listen and refer? Well, I think it's always okay, and I've had these situations in my coaching life when student-athletes approach me directly mm-hmm. and say, Coach, I want help with this. It's an off-court issue. Can you help me? Now, unfortunately, that occurs very very infrequently because yeah. young people do not want to be vulnerable, and they certainly don't want to be vulnerable to their head coach who determines their playing time and things of that totally. nature. Uh, so, so those experiences were incredible when I've been able to help women who have come to me, not gone around me or, you know, come directly to me and had an issue. Uh, but that's, that's the minority. And that's part of why I got out of coaching and went this route because I realized coaches are limited. Coaches can't dig and dig. Uh, that will be, that'll hurt the cause. Many times student athletes are not ready to talk with their coaches because of various reasons. And so you can be available, you can be ready to listen. If you're asked to be involved, well, then that's outstanding. But you probably need an assist by a great trainer or somebody in psych uh, to kind of help with the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely, those days of coaches really helping, I think those were special days when we were really able to help. You felt like you were developing people more. But you have to remember, sports is more transactional now. You know, if you look at the transfer portal, that'll yeah. give you a sense of transaction. <laughs> and so what what is the yeah. likelihood of developing a person further if you only have them for a year or two? Mm-hmm. So now everything's a transaction. So that that kind of, that's going to upset the apple cart a little bit to what we're talking about. Yeah. Because... You know, transferring in the whole portal thing, that creates uncertainty that that is definitely not good and mm-hmm. and can not allow for some of these things to happen, some of this mental health care. Yeah. I think it could play to a coach's advantage, though I not a coach, haven't been a coach. Um, but uh, you know, I I have a, a separate business aside from science and sports recovery. And there's a lot of transactional like transactions in there. So when you were talking about that, it was like the the key to fight the like transactional nature is building relationships. Right? So if you it's messy because relationships aren't a straight line. There's no uh way to say, hey, I put in an hour, that means my relationship got you know, X amount better, which is hard for athletes to understand because it's, you know, but that relationship equity will come back to you and people being more loyal, not going, you know, transferring, people referring, you know, their friends, their brothers, their sisters to your school, uh, you know, and building your your program that way as well. So I I think, like you said, the, the transactional in nature could be fought by paying more attention to the, the mental health, would you agree? Yeah, if you can get into a rhythm of support at the school, because if mm-hmm. I'm transferring, I'm coming in and out of schools, therefore not settling down enough to understand what I can receive from that school. Yeah. So it, it, it's, And then, of course, coaches can work for relationships. But you've had kids, I mean, say, well, I really appreciate you, Coach, so much, but I just got I just need a different, you know, look here, different scenery. So, so again, if it's going to be transactional in nature with the transfers, then communication is going to be more transactional. And that's going to pull away from the authentic nature of mental health assessment. And so that's part of one of my concerns as we look at the portal, rotating people in and out, 
And hopefully that's not going to be for the long term. Hopefully that will settle down and everyone will realize the value of being somewhere four years. Yeah. And I'm assuming that COVID and the basketball realm kind of accelerated the transport or transactional nature. I know it did in the running world, especially with like, you know, seniors, they graduated. Now they're like, well, now what? You know, I could go get an MBA, but I could go get it from my school or somebody else's school. Um, and those kinds of things too. So, um, man, there's, I could talk to you all day about mental health and stuff, but I want to give you time. Uh, I know you have, you have a book out, uh, Secret Warrior. So if you want, uh, learn more about Coach P's story and all the things that she's dealt with and is about, um, go get that. Uh, Coach P, if somebody is like, I want to connect with you more, uh, I want to know what more the book is about, who it's for, um, what would you say? It's for everyone. Uh, the trailer's on Amazon, and it really speaks to a mental health journey and overcoming that, and more importantly, the loyalty of a team in the process of supporting their coach at a very difficult time. So I think it's an every, everyone book, uh, not just sports people, but others. And it's on Amazon. The trailer's on Amazon as well. And soft cover, hard cover. And I just hope people can enjoy it. And right now, the Audible is out. And so I narrate the book myself, which was a, a challenge. Uh, so I yeah. think the Audible is, is good because you can hear me talk about the experience. So I would yeah. promote that greatly. And then my social is Coach P for Life. Coach P with a four for life. And... um we're active and doing talks and all sorts of things to uh, try to help with brain health, brain health education, and and just do what we can to, to make it more manageable. Awesome. Well, if you're listening, go buy the book. Uh, connect with her, Coach P for the number four life on social. I'll have links to the book, her socials, all that kind of stuff in the show notes. So if you're on your phone right now, go look at that. Uh, if you're driving or doing something else, uh, this is episode 37. Uh, so go to com slash 37. You'll see all the notes right there. Coach P, thanks so much for being on and uh, blessing us with your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Wishing you the very best. Awesome. All right, episode's over. If you found value in this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. And if you haven't already yet subscribed, do so now so you don't miss any important topics in the coming week. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, please send them my way. I am most responsive on Instagram. That's at jcheese, J-A-E, cheese, like the food, or email me directly at jace, J-A-S-E, at scienceofsportsrecovery.com. Talk soon.